We're continuing in our study in Daniel, a prophetic and at times apocalyptic book. And we've arrived at chapter 7 of Daniel. We're learning through Daniel's prophetic book that we can trust God and we can live faithfully even when persecution comes our way and even when national and at times international leaders cause us to have a little sense of anxiety and insecurity about our world's condition. We have the historic assurance in this book and all the events surrounding it in the Old Testament that ultimately God will prevail and his kingdom is going to last forever. So Daniel 1 through 6 is a look back at history that becomes very clear because we have history in our rearview mirror. So we have that 2020 hindsight. We can see very clearly what some of the images in the different dreams in Daniel chapters 1 through 6 meant. But we're having a little bit shift, a shift in direction right now. We're turning the telescope around and facing it into the future. We're looking forward now into a history that hasn't been written yet because it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> and it's a little less clear because there are certain things that just have to happen before we could actually completely identify them. What we do sense, though, is that something is quite disturbing about one of the images, especially in chapter 7. And if we think it's disturbing, well, we're not in, uh, we're not by ourselves. We're in good company. Daniel thought it was pretty disturbing, too. He even says so in this chapter. He says, I, Daniel, was troubled in my spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. Now, on one end of the spectrum of belief, if you have a spectrum that goes way over to one side and way over to the other, one end, we have people who say, we're never going to fully understand this kind of book, this apocalyptic literature. It's there to give us something very generic, but we shouldn't try to understand them. We just have to trust and know that the future is sealed in God's good timing and for his purposes. And yet, there are people in this camp that would tend to throw out certain things that have been identified because of our look back in history. And because we can see that, and we can see it so clearly, I think it shows that we need to be somewhere else on the spectrum. There are other people at the other end of the spectrum. These are the ones I think, to me, become even more troubling <laughs> because they say, oh, we have real highly specific details and we can plug in specific names and dates and places and nations and they have caused a lot of trouble throughout history because some of these people try to start looking so obsessively to the details of these apocalyptic literature books that they take their eyes off the prize they get too wrapped up in looking at political details and current events and they fail to see that what we're supposed to be getting from these books is hope so we can live faithfully in fact, sometimes they get so pulled away from that, as we've seen in just the past few months, that sometimes they would be willing to do things that the Bible clearly states we shouldn't do. And it's never okay to break God's laws trying to fulfill God's purposes. So where do I fall? I fall somewhere in the middle. There are enough details in these apocalyptic books, especially 7 through 12 of Daniel, that it can give us some hope that should really bolster our faith and encourage us to remain faithful and to not give up and to not falter. And yet, 
there are certain things that we ought not to do. And I think one of the things that becomes very clear, especially through looking just at recent history, we should not listen to anything other than what's in God's word. And somebody says, oh, I've got the inside track. We've got this person that he's really trustworthy and faithful, and he's got some inside knowledge. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. Be cautious and look to God's word for the truth that gives us hope so we can live faithfully. The purpose of apocalyptic literature. This is something we really need to grasp. It's important, folks. The purposes, basically, for this kind of literature are so that we can have a glimpse into the future, but having a glimpse is not the same thing as turning a telescope on it with every detail filled in. It's going to show us, unfortunately, this is the thing that disturbed Daniel. It's going to show us that things are going to get much worse before the end comes. And then things will get much better for those who are in Christ. However, the good news about that is that it shows us that God triumphs in the end. And that gives us hope so we can live really faithfully. So we find out as we're going to read this chapter together that God's going to put an end to the beast that's mentioned here in chapter 7. He's going to put an end to that person that we also can call the Antichrist. He who has set himself up completely against God and his kingdom and is trying to rule the kingdom on earth. God's judgment is going to be final. There's going to be a time when God is finally going to be the just judge and Jesus' reign will begin. Now, we're going to see in later chapters that there's some dispute about when that might happen in the course of history and for how long. That's not going to be the most important thing, although we are going to look at it, though. But Jesus will reign again. We know he's going to because the Bible promises that. Shouldn't that give us hope? Man, I can't wait. I'm looking forward to that reign even though I don't know for sure when it's going to, to begin specifically. It's going to help me remain hopeful, however, and not to falter in my faith, because I know that God wins in the end. So what's the key here? The key to understanding the Old Testament is the New Testament. I mentioned that a couple of different times as we've been making our way through Daniel. We see this New Testament passage that shows us how this works, in fact, from 2 Peter. We also have the prophetic messages as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Isn't that good to know? That's the key. So how are we supposed to look at these apocalyptic passages? Well, there are three things, and we have them all available to us in Scripture. We're going to look at the text. That's always a good place to start. Rather than starting by reading other people's opinions about the text, it's always good for us just to read the text. It's much more plain sometimes than we might be willing to admit. <laughs> and it's there for us, and it's accessible. And then we need the context. And for us, fortunately, as we've discovered before, how Daniel is sort of a book that's uh, folded in the middle. There's a crease right there. And if you can fold it right up together, there are parallel chapters that kiss each other. They match each other. And Daniel 7 and Daniel 2 are these parallel complementary chapters. That's where we can find a great deal of context. Chapter 2 sets us up for some things, and then Daniel 7 relates to more uh, detailed information about some of these kingdoms that we had 
read about in chapter in chapter two. Chapter two. <laughs> Suddenly I got just all Midwestern there. I'm sorry about that, don't you know? <laughs> and then we have the new text, the New Testament. That's really going to help uh, button this thing up for us and make it so much more accessible so we can get what we need to about this general future glimpse into a history that hasn't happened yet. So first, let me read the entirety of chapter 7, the text itself. Then we're going to grab some important context from both the similarities and more importantly, the differences between chapters 2 and 7, because it's the difference that starts to take us away from the history that we already know into a history that hasn't happened yet. That's where we could signal a little road sign that has one of those arrows that exits the freeway and points us off into some new direction. It's a masterful way of showing us how these differences can give us these wonderful clues. Then we're going to see how the new text, the New Testament, clarifies things from Daniel, showing us what more we can expect in the future and how that can bring us hope. So here's the text itself, Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. Hmm. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool, and his throne was flaming with fire. And its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. 
I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. And then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying. With its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left, I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It'll be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. That will be open for debate later. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. May the Lord add his blessing and also some insight to the reading of his word. Mm. When I mentioned that the time, times, and half a time would be open for debate later, that's not open for debate, that's God's word. What I meant by that is that the interpretation of that phrase will be open for debate because it has been debated for centuries by scholars, and we are going to take a look at that, though. So here are the main points to the text, just to summarize. This is a vision that Daniel had during the first reign of King Belshazzar. You'll probably remember that he was the son, the younger, of uh, Nabonidus, 
He was the co-regent, so he was reigning at the same time because Nabonidus had started to build that new palace, and there were two different regions, both being uh, served by the father and the son. Then we need to ask the big question. This is always a good question uh, when we start to interpret especially difficult passages like the one we just read. <clears throat> is there some explanation contained in the passage itself? And fortunately for us, the answer is yes. Just like when Jesus gave many of his parables, some of them like the sower and the soils, he actually gave an explanation because his disciples were saying, uh, we don't understand that, Lord. Can you explain it to us? And he does. Same thing here. We can see in verse 17 that there is an explanation offered. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. This becomes the big question then. Which four kingdoms and why are they important? Well, in the context that we have through that parallel passage, chapter two, we understand more about these four kingdoms, but we're not going to see that chapter seven is completely identical to chapter two when it comes to these four kingdoms. And because we have so much information here for us, we're really mining some nuggets here in chapter seven. We're only going to have time to look at the first three of these kingdoms today, and we're going to leave you hanging. And we'll have to say, tune in next week for you to be able to find out about that fourth kingdom. Chapter two, we know that there was that dream of the huge statue with the four different materials. The similarities help us understand what these three nations were. And because we have history in our hindsight, we understand that more clearly. Then we're going to find these differences to help us with that fourth. First of all, the similarities. We can see here that we've got the head of gold, which was Babylon. Daniel had actually said that when he was interpreting the dream with God's supernatural help. Then we see in Daniel 7 that there's another symbol, and that's associated with also Babylon, and that's the lion, the winged lion, in fact. The head of gold was Babylon, Daniel 2.38, shows how the prophet told Nebuchadnezzar, you are that head of gold. Then the parallels to Daniel 7.4, the first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet. And this is an important phrase, like a human being. We haven't seen that before and that phrase becomes really important. So hang that somewhere on a hook in your brain. I'm probably gonna pull that one off the hook again and look at it a little bit later. <laughs> and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. So we can see that the first beast of chapter seven is very clearly Babylon. In Nebuchadnezzar, the second dream, the first nation, the head of gold was Babylon. In Daniel's dream, the first in a series of nations was also Babylon known as the winged lion. Remember I told you some time ago about the Ishtar gate in Babylon, which Joy and I and our family got to see in Germany when we were over there one time at the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. Well, this is one of the objects that's in this beautiful gate, and they have some uh, kiln-fired bricks that actually have some beautiful colors to them. And this is one of the winged lions, and that was one of the mythological creatures that was associated in much of that literature back then with Babylon. Next, we see this kingdom and the statue from Daniel 2. 
the one represented by the chest and arms of silver. That was, as we found out, the Medes and Persians. This was the Medo-Persian Empire, the empire that conquered Babylon in 539 BC under the leadership of Cyrus. Paralleled with chapter 7, we see this. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear, and it was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. Well, ew, that sounds kind of terrible. The details of this predictive dream are made clear as we look back at what happened in the era just after Babylon had been the dominant force in the known world at that time. The bear raised up on one of its sides is the Medo-Persian Empire. That's because they became the dominant force after Babylon. So that fulfilled the first dream really nicely. The three ribs in its mouth represent the three major kingdoms conquered by the Medo-Persians, Lydia in 546 BC, Babylon in 539 BC, and Egypt in 525 BC. So here's the amazing thing when you think about it related to these details. Daniel would not have known why the bear was raised up on one side, nor would he have known why it had three ribs in its mouth. That's just strange imagery. I know that sometimes we'll talk about the weird dreams we had after we have awakened, if it's the type of dream that sticks in your mind, and you think, where in the world did that come from? Some of these images are so strange, and sometimes they're a little disturbing. And I'm sure that Daniel, even though he writes about it like that, probably was pondering this for a long time because it did disturb him, and he's thinking, yeah, but what could it mean? <laughs> Isn't it unusual that God could do something so supernatural as to inspire somebody like Daniel with this kind of specific detail and Daniel being obedient did what he was supposed to do and he helps us understand these details even though for him he didn't even have a clue. Some people, some liberal scholars would try to say, oh no, Daniel wrote this at a much later time or somebody claiming to be Daniel took Daniel's name and wrote that but they had history to look back on and that's why they could put these details in there. No, it doesn't work that way. We can see lots of evidence and including archaeological evidence and other things that continue to verify the fact that this is predictive prophecy. Predictive prophecy is miraculous because it takes a miraculous God to prophesy through one of his chosen people like Daniel. And that's what's happening here for us. Simon Peter says this, and I love what he says because he gets it. Peter got this idea about God inspiring people, even though they didn't even know what it meant themselves. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. And then look at this one in verse 12 of 1 Peter 1. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. <laughs> Even the angels were baffled by this concept that God could actually predict the future by inspiring somebody to have a dream or a vision, and they didn't even know the outcome of what they were prophesying. God's ways are much higher than our ways, and they are mysterious at times. And this is one of those mysterious books. 
It's incredible that God can do this, but I'm, I'm certainly glad he did because it gives me such confidence now that we have this to look back on, knowing that he's predicting something in the future that we can also be confident about because God always keeps his promises and he's demonstrated that. Now we, we have the luxury of history, which is wonderful. But because of the luxury of that history, it's giving us that confidence because as we look in the other direction into the future, we know that if he's promising that he's gonna come back, he's gonna come back. Here are some things that we need to know about predictive prophecy. First of all, prophecy provides enough important detail about the future so we can be ready. And when things do happen and it feels like everything's falling apart and people are pulling the rug out from underneath our confidence in world leaders and the events that are going on around us, we can know that those things are predicted to have happened or, or to happen. We know it's gonna get worse before it gets better. So we ought not to be surprised by that. We ought to say, yeah, this seems like this is going the way that the Bible said they're gonna be going. We can't put our confidence in human leaders. We just can't. Secondly, we should never speculate about many of these specifics related to how these future prophecies will be fulfilled. Folks, I can't say this strongly enough. We should not speculate and try to plug in specific people's names as leaders of nations and how they relate to some of these things in the book of Daniel or in the book of Revelation. We need to avoid that because it will take us completely away from the purposes that these books have for us. Daniel's own experience teaches us that we aren't supposed to know specifically how or even when certain future events will unfold. So many people have tried. I looked through about a dozen different ones online about when people were predicting that the beginning of the end has, has come and it's gonna be this date. And they say, what part of no man knoweth the, the day nor the hour did that person not get? No man knows the day nor the hour. <laughs> The Bible says that. Why are we getting so obsessed over these details? We're not supposed to know them. We're supposed to be bolstered in our faith and to live faithfully and to shine God's light faithfully into a dark world. But folks, let's not get obsessed over the stuff that we don't know about yet. Can you imagine Daniel scratching his head, trying to figure out what in the world the one bear being up on one side meant? And what about those three ribs in the bear's mouth? He may have really pondered that one. And finally, he may have gotten to a point when he said, okay, Lord, I don't know either. I'm gonna put this one down to, I have to ask God when I see him, when it's my time. We have to do that. All of us should be doing this kind of thing with predictive prophecy. Can I get an amen? <laughs> and this is important. If Daniel had speculated, he probably would have thrown people off the track because they would have been so preoccupied with the speculation that they very well could have missed the event itself. Let's not pull ourselves off the track. Let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Let me illustrate how some people have tried to do more with predictive prophecy than they should have. The dangers of speculation can be seen in just the number in Revelation 13, 18, the number of the beast. John writes that the number of the Antichrist or the beast will be 666. 
The passage itself says that wisdom is required when it comes to calculating this mysterious number. Well, the meaning of 666 really is a mystery. John, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, intended it to be that way. If God had intended for us to know everything spelled out in detail, he would have given it to us that way. <laughs> Instead, he gives us some of these things that are mysterious and that are supposed to give us a certain sense or feeling, but without being so specific that we know specifically what that means. Some people have speculated like crazy. They say that they're literally going to brand a mark of 666 on people's foreheads, and you have to have that mark or else you can't buy or sell anything. Other people have said now there's going to be chips that are going to be embedded in us, and you have to have that chip if you're going to be able to buy. Maybe, I don't know, but we keep speculating, and people become obsessed over that. Let me be blunt about this. Don't. If God had intended this mystery to be readily solved, I think he would have shown us. But he's given it to us in these cryptic, mysterious uh, books for a reason. Some folks have tried to assign a number with a value associated with every letter of the alphabet. And they say it has to be people, some of them even go so far as to say it's got to be a person with three names, and each of the three names has to have six letters in it. And the numeric value of those three names adds up to a total of 666. And that means that now we have a whole list of people that we thought, some people thought, were going to be the or have been the Antichrist. Caesar Nero was one of them. Ronald Wilson Reagan was one of them. Mikhail Gorbachev was another. And several popes have been named along the way throughout Roman Catholic history. Folks, the links that some people will go to in order to get a person's name to add up to 666 are amazing. And you could use all kinds of mathematical gymnastics and come up with anybody that would come up with that answer. Just don't do it. <laughs> Somehow the number 666 will be related to the Antichrist. We know that. But knowing specifically how that number applies to the beast is not the point of these books. <laughs> By becoming obsessed with this literal application of a number which appears in a book filled with symbolic imagery, people have completely missed the point, namely that we're supposed to continue to live faithfully, to put our full trust in God so that we don't lose heart. And we should not become like the world and try to use the world's weapons in fighting God's battles for him. We don't have to defend God. God can do just a fine job of defending himself. We have to shine the light of Jesus into a dark world, and we do that by using the weapons God gives us, which are the character qualities of Christ. Again, can I get an amen? Mm -hmm. Now, here's something that I find much more plausible, and it's much more general. When we think about that number 666, can you tell I get a little revved up about this? Uh, I get revved up for good meaning because I think that a lot of people are doing God a disservice and are giving him a bad name and the bride of Christ a black eye when we try to do more with these kinds of books than we should. In the Bible, the number seven often refers to the perfection or holiness of God. Traditionally, in a great deal of biblical literature, the number six is associated with man. Part of that comes from the fact that man was created on the sixth day, Another part of that is that they say it's just one number less than God, and so it's below God or less than God. And we certainly know that we fall short of God's perfection. So that's a generic way of looking at that. Well, we can see in Daniel that the beast, a.k.a. the Antichrist, 
will strive to be like God. He will likely even claim to be God. However, just as the number six falls short of the number seven, so will the beast or the Antichrist fall short of the so-called trinity of sixes. Even that is an attempt to be kind of like God. It's sort of like a trinity, but it falls short of the real trinity. Because we know that the Antichrist is going to fall short because God wins in the end. It's been predicted for us. And by looking back in history, we have all the evidence we need to be firm in knowing that if he says he's going to win, he's going to win. So folks, take a big, deep breath. Let it out slowly. Take a step back. Look at how many generations have been encouraged by Daniel's predictions in history. And be encouraged to remain faithful, regardless of who happens to be the head of state in any particular nation in our contemporary world. Let's avoid getting pulled way off track by speculating about specific candidates, specific events because of an inside knowledge somewhere else. Look to God's word. We really must remain faithful. And we really must keep shining God's light into this dark world. Now, for the third empire in the parallel chapters of two and seven, we can see here that that third empire, that third kingdom was the one described as having thighs of bronze and that was Greece. But then we can see further detail in chapter seven about having the leopard that also had some wings associated with that. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. Note that this rather incredible detail is something that Daniel would not have known, and yet he was faithful in putting it down because that's what he was supposed to do. Wings on the back of a leopard point to swiftness. Now, a leopard is very fast anyway. I've seen the National Geographic things, and they are incredibly fast, but you add wings of a bird on there, and you've got yourself a fierce, fast, swift beast. Daniel didn't even know what it meant yet, but we know by looking back in history that this is talking about Alexander the Great and Greece. He overthrew the dominating rule of Persia and conquered all the kingdoms in the known world in just 12 years in the years 336 through 324 BC. Man, that's fast. <laughs> to move that swiftly and conquer that many kingdoms boggles the mind. In 324 BC, Alexander returned from his many conquests to visit the tomb of Cyrus the Great. He died only a year later at the age of 33. What was he doing at that time? Trying to rebuild Babylon. But God had said, and this is interesting, God had said through the prophet Jeremiah that Babylon would never be rebuilt. Aha, God's word always comes true. It says in Jeremiah 51, before your eyes, I will repay Babylon and all who live in Babylonia for all the wrong they have done in Zion, declares the Lord. And let me continue to read through some more verses there in Jeremiah chapter 51. This is verse 25. I'm against you, you destroying mountain, you who destroy the whole earth, declares the Lord. 
man, I don't want to be on God's bad side. I don't want him to be against me. I want to be on his side. I will stretch out my hand against you, roll you off the cliffs, and make you a burned out mountain. No rock will be taken from you for a cornerstone, nor any stone for a foundation, for you will be desolate forever, declares the Lord. Now, we have history to look back on, and you know what's happened with Babylon? It's never been rebuilt. In fact, this is interesting. In the late 1980s, Saddam Hussein, then president of Iraq, that dictator, the one who tried to use the name of Nebuchadnezzar, remember him, as a public relations tool to try to win the people's trust and favor? He tried to rebuild Babylon. And in fact, Operation Desert Storm broke out in 1990. You know what he was working on? His palace. That would have been in what we know now as Kuwait. As he's working on his palace, God raised up 500,000 troops from allies around the world to go against him. And they stopped Saddam's army from invading Kuwait. In the Allied bombing raids that continued long after the initial surge of Operation Desert Storm, everything in Babylon that Saddam had built was destroyed and burned out. This photo shows soldiers pulling down Saddam's statue in 2003. So what about the four heads of the leopard? That sounds strange, doesn't it? A leopard with four heads and wings, yikes. When Alexander died unexpectedly and quite young, he drew on what little strength he had, and it's recorded that he said, to the strongest. Well, that ushered in a new era of bloodshed because the age of the diodici, the diodici, which means the successors, ushered in this new era that led up to what then became the Hellenistic world. The strongest generals each tried to fill the power vacuum left by Alexander, and their efforts to secure their own kingdoms and fame became one of the bloodiest eras of Greek history. These ambitious generals attempted to secure parts of Alexander's empire. They were about their own fame and their own fortune. They wanted to write history of their parts of the kingdoms, and they are the foreheads of the leopard. You can see a map here. This week, we've seen how the parallel chapters of 7 and 2 reveal additional details about the first three kingdoms of the earlier dream about the large statue of a man with four different materials. Next week, we're going to see the fourth kingdom and the one that gets to be the most scary because that's the one that takes us into the future and looks about that awful beast that Daniel talked about, the one that we call the Antichrist. We're going to see how the differences in these two chapters point us into some new information, and some people have mistakenly said that 7 and 2 are identical, and they've come up with what I think are wrong conclusions about where they're headed with that. And yet, we're going to gain a great deal of hope from these passages as well as we look back at the nations that were under God's sovereign control because folks, all the nations in the world today are still under God's sovereign control. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And through Christ, our amen, which means yes, 
ascends to God for his glory. And we as a church are learning how to combine our collective yeses and put them on the table and say, God, use us to shine your light into this dark world because as the dark gets darker, your light is gonna shine brighter. And we get to be a part of cranking up how bright that light is gonna shine. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Daniel's prophetic and at times apocalyptic visions. Thank you for all the ways that you have tied them together to show us not just from history, what those things were like back then, but that by turning the telescope in the opposite direction, you're showing us what we get to look forward to, some of which is not pleasant, but we're so grateful that you're showing us that you do win in the end. And we can count on that. We can trust you because you're still sovereign. You haven't given up on our world, even though things feel like they're completely out of control at times. And we become so unsettled in our spirits. We can be bolstered in our faith by knowing that you're still sovereign. And that no matter what happens, you're still in control and you can depose leaders and raise up new leaders. And that we, of all people, should be able to stand firm, not because of inside information from any human being, but because we have the inside track, because you have inspired these writers of your word, the Bible. And we can look to your word for our strength and nowhere else. May we become people of the word and people of hope and living faithfully to shine your light into this world. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.